As the children are being dismissed, why don't you please take out a copy of God's Word. I encourage you strongly to have your own copy of it out. You will not, you cannot get out of this time all that you should without getting out a copy of that Word to look at for yourself. Last week we saw that true happiness is found only in the presence of the Lord and that the Lord is found only by the Spirit through the Word. And so you will be helped by having out and paying close attention to that Word in which we find our happiness. We are back today in John chapter 14. Only verses 25 through 27 today. I just couldn't do the whole thing. So we'll wrap up 14 next week. Page 901 in the Pew Bible. John 14, 25 through 27. This week, I want us to see that peace is a key component to happiness. We all want to be happy. We are all of us always pursuing happiness in different ways. Well, you will not and you cannot have it without also having peace, true peace. And so to pursue happiness, you must pursue peace. And there are a few things that people want more in this world than peace. There are a few things that I want more than peace externally, of course, but I believe even more internally. And so what is peace and how do we find it? We should start first by understanding that there is no lasting peace found in the world. Like many of you, you pro- like, like me, many of you probably at some point in the morning wake up and you check the news and we once again wake up to headlines of conflict and murder and terror. Great conflict without, for, which causes for many of us great conflict within. Anxiety, fear, uncertainty. Is peace even possible? What's going on in our world? And so there is no peace to be found in this world. We're going to see that uh, first and foremost. And second, related to that, we we need to understand as we begin that most people today just have no idea how to answer these most basic of questions. What, What really is peace and how do we find it? It was a great article in World Magazine this week that was seeking to understand our current cultural moment. And we, we refer to different periods of history often as ages. You have the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, Age of Ancient Empires, Middle Ages, and, and so on. Recently, we've had the, the Age of Reason and others. What would we call today? Right? The, the Age of what? Some have argued for the age of the screen as it increasingly dominates the whole of our lives. I think you can make a pretty good case for that. The famous Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has argued quite successfully, I think, for the age of authenticity as the idea of this this expressive individualism, right? It just dominates, right? Happiness is found in being true to yourself, looking within, finding what's within, following your heart, bringing that out, and being who you truly are, and you will find happiness. So related to that, others have argued that maybe we find ourselves in the age of feeling, right? I feel this way, so it must be true and good. It's all connected. But age of authenticity or age of feeling, whatever you want to call it, how's that going for us? When we look around at our cultural moment dominated by screen or self or feeling, how is that really working out? Uh, This article takes its cue I want to look up this guy a little bit more. I like him now. It takes its cue from the first track of the newest album of a band that I used to love 
back in the day. It's a Canadian band named Arcade Fire. It's not a Christian band, but they have some good music, at least back then. I'm not, I'm not telling you to listen to them, but interesting stuff. But the opening track of their new album is titled The Age of Anxiety. And that sounds like a pretty accurate summary of our current cultural moment as we constantly hear about fear and anxiety and exponentially rising causes of, of reported mental health problems. Two years ago, the American Psychological Association even declared a national mental health crisis. Now, whatever that means, it's clear that there's just not a lot of peace out there. And then if we're all honest with ourselves, there's often not a whole lot of peace in here. But we should not be surprised that the age of authenticity has quickly developed into the age of anxiety. There are many contributing factors and reasons that we could consider why that is, but I want to focus today simply on the fact that we tend to seek our peace precisely where it cannot be found, within, in ourself. What we're about to read in our passage is Jesus Christ himself offering us his peace. Peace that is found only outside of self, found only in him, found only in the Lord. We all of us desperately want and need peace. We all of us likewise have somewhat similar to Jeremiah 6.14 in Israel. We've been listening to various false prophets proclaiming peace, peace. When there is no peace, where can we find that which we must have and so desperately desire? Well, I love God's response to all that in Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. That's peace. And that's our goal. Rest for our souls, peace for our troubled hearts. And we're going to look for it not within, but without. Not, for some, not in something novel and new, but something old and true. And since this passage, John 14, is sort of the, the grand unveiling of the person and work of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, I want to focus specifically today on the Holy Spirit and on peace and how those two things are intimately connected together. It is in the passage that Christ promises to give the Holy Spirit that Christ promises to give his peace. And those two things go together. And so point number one, we're going to start and see that peace is found only in the person of the Spirit. Who is this person that Christ is promising? Then number two, we're going to see that this peace is found only in the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, who is he? Well, what does he do? Let's, let's consider his work. And thus, number three, we're going to exhort, exhort and apply here at the end. I didn't know what to do at the end, but uh, here's a fun worded point. Uh, we're going to see that perfect peace passeth all understanding. And all I want to do is look a little bit more specifically at what that peace is and encourage you to pursue it with all that you have. So peace, we're talking about the spirit and we're talking about the peace. Big idea, very simple but important, is that true peace is found only as the Spirit teaches you what is true. That's what I want to look at this morning in RD4. True peace is found only as the Spirit, that's the who, teaches you, that's the what and the how, what is true. 
Let's read the text and we'll start to walk through that and see if I can make that case. John chapter 14. We're just going to pick up in verse 25 and I'm just going to stop in verse 27. There's just too much here. I had this whole brilliant Trinitarian outline. We were going to do spirit, father, and son. We're going to get all of them together in one sermon. It's impossible. So we're going to come back and we'll do 28 uh, through the end next week. So John 14, I'm reading for you verses 25 through 27. Pay attention. This sermon is about the word and how the spirit works through the word. Pay attention to that word. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Uh, if you would bow with me, let's, let's start first with, with a word of prayer. Father, you tell us twice in this chapter through Christ to let not our hearts be troubled. Father, many of us very much have troubled hearts right now. And so we ask that you would guard our hearts and our minds. We ask right now for the peace that uh, passeth all understanding. We ask right now that you would do the very thing that we're going to consider this morning. That you, by your Spirit, working through this Word, would teach us what is true. Would teach us about who you are. About who we are in our sin. About what Christ has done about that. And thus what we have safely and securely guaranteed um, for us in Him. Father, we all want peace. We are all looking for it. In this world, we are all looking for it within. We are all looking for it in changed and improved and better circumstances. Father, convince us that there is true peace that is uh, found, that can be found, that can be untouched by the troubles and the difficulties and the hardships of this world. Convince us that true peace is truly found only in you, um, by your Spirit, uh, based upon the work of your Son. Father, I am a fellow struggler in this area. Father, there has been much unrest and, and un, a lack of peace in my own heart. And, and so, Father, I speak as one who has not arrived, um, but who is desperately dependent upon your grace and upon your spirit to, to experience this same peace. So, Father, do in me what we need uh, done in every single one of us this morning. Father, teach us what peace is. Teach us where it's found. Give us peace this morning by your spirit through your word. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, peace in the person of the Holy Spirit. First, peace dominates our three points. That's the big idea of the sermon. So we need to start with that. Why are we talking about peace? Again, make sure my words are coming from this word. Well, it's because obviously of verse 27. So look at it and listen to it again. Here's the big idea that Jesus is giving us. Here's the what, and we're going to look at the who, that this what comes through. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And so why here in the context of our text is Jesus talking about peace? About leaving them peace? Well, because he is leaving them. Remember, all the way back in 13.1, we read that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. 
And we know that his departure is his dying. But the very next thing that 13.1 asserts is that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so Christ is both leaving and loving. And because he loves them and is leaving them, he is in these five chapters preparing them for that leaving by teaching them. That's going to be our second point. And so then back in 1321, we read that Jesus himself was troubled in his own spirit. Why? Well, because one of them was going to betray him. We know that it's Judas. Verse 30, we saw that immediately Judas went out and it was night. And so the betrayer has departed to go and do his dishonorable deed. And at that very moment while he is doing that, here we have Jesus beginning and preparing the eleven for this betrayal and his departure that is going to come. 1333, he has told them, where I am going, you cannot come. And so Jesus is troubled. The disciples are understandably troubled as they hear this news from this one that they so loved. But then Jesus says to his troubled disciples in 14.1, let not your hearts be troubled. And so for these last six sermons, we have been talking much about their and our tendency toward troubled hearts. How is your heart this morning? Honestly, would you say that it is more characterized by, by trouble or peace, inward, emotional, spiritual, mental peace? How's your heart? How's your heart been this last week, these first 21 days of the new year? How is your heart? Yeah, I confess that mine has been somewhat Troubled, even as I repeatedly come back to the let not your hearts be troubled of 14.1. And it is greatly ironic that in God's providence, in one of the least peaceful weeks of our recent memory, I've been having to prepare this sermon on peace. Okay, so I I clearly have, have much to learn about not letting my heart be troubled. The disciples still very much have troubled hearts at this point in our text. And so Jesus has opened with this in 14.1, and then I'll look at the rest of 14.27. Jesus says the same thing again. Let not your hearts be troubled. And he expands it a bit further this time. Neither let them be afraid. Psalm 103, I come back to again and again. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That's good news. So what do you do if you, maybe like me, have been here for all six sermons of John 14 and you still find yourself with a troubled heart? Well, first you join the club. You recognize that all of us are far more anxious and troubled internally than we would dare to let on. We've got to figure out how to talk about this better and help one another with this better. And then you begin to rest in the fact that you have a gracious Heavenly Father who knows you and is patient with you and has provided the very things that you need so that you can increasingly find peace in that troubled heart. And what are those things? Well, first and foremost, those things are a person. 
14.1 and 27 provide for us bookends. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. What's the focus inside of those bookends? What is introduced to us? How primarily is Christ seeking to provide peace for troubled hearts? It's the Holy Spirit. He's been all over the Bible up until this point. Everywhere. But this is really like the first sustained treatment and exposition of let me tell you who this is. Let me tell you what he does here in chapter 14 in the context of let not your hearts be troubled. The spirit is how. And so look back to verse 25. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. So again, he's once again back to his impending departure. The while I'm still with you implies an impending not about to be with you. Well, what happens then? What hope is there for them then? How can there be peace in the absence of the Prince of Peace? Verse 26 is how. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus comforts his troubled disciples with the promised presence of the Holy Spirit. Peace is thus found only, ultimately, through the Holy Spirit. When we meet someone, we almost always do the same thing. We almost always ask two questions. What's your name? Or what we mean with that question is, well, who are you? And then we almost always ask, well, what do you do? Those are the questions. We would be helped in asking those two questions of the Holy Spirit and under, better understanding his person and his work. Because there's just so much confusion when it comes to the Holy Spirit. There's a whole lot of spirit silliness out there. I told you I was going to talk about some of it. I like to make fun of the spirit silliness because it's so ridiculous. I, I pulled some of it out because maybe it's just, just not helpful. But there's just a lot of absurdity that gets attributed to the Holy Spirit that really, really bothers me. We won't get into all that right now, I guess. But there are two main things that I want to emphasize for now. The who, this is the first point. I simply want to encourage you again to think more intentionally about the fact that the Spirit is a person. He is God himself. He is the third person of the Trinity. And then point two will be the what or the work, the Spirit as the teacher. But first here, we're on the who. We saw last week that, that happiness is wrapped up not in things, but in people. It's, it's really wrapped up in relationship. Well, likewise, here, peace is found ultimately only in persons. So who are you, Holy Spirit? Oh, well, he is God, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And I probably don't need to convince too many of you that the Spirit is a person, but I do probably need to convince most of you why that matters and what that means for you and what to do with that. But again, we do need to be aware that there are many out there who would deny the personhood of the Spirit. Our Jehovah's Witnesses friends, for example, they believe that the Spirit is not a person, but a power, a, a force. And almost all of their errors are rooted in this. They get the identity of God wrong. In denying the deity of the Son, and in denying the personhood of the Spirit, they end up losing everything. And they are left with an entirely different religion. No triune God, no grace, no salvation. 
Okay, we talk about this a lot, but there's nothing more important than the identity of God. A.W. Tozer, there's nothing more important about you than what comes into your mind when you think about God. Now, 70 years ago, C.S. Lewis was surely right when he quipped in response to that, that the infinitely more important point is what God thinks about you. Okay, amen. That's, that's true, of course. But what God thinks about us in his grace and then does for us in his son and then reveals to us by his spirit through his word, well, that's very much then going to result in our very important right thinking about him. The important point is that there's nothing more important than the identity of God. And if he is the God of peace, Hebrews 13, 20, if Christ is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6, if the fruit of the Spirit is peace, Galatians 5, 22, then to find peace, you must find it in this God as he reveals himself in this word. And even in uh, the few short verses of our passage, he's revealed to us as the God who is three in one. Remember, this is the foundational truth of the Christian faith, the triune God. We find all three persons in verse 26. Jesus, the Son, is speaking about the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in his name. There's all three right there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Shorter Catechism. These three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. There is only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. That's the Trinity in seven simple statements. Of course there's mystery here. Great mystery. But there's no absurdity here. And of course we should expect that God, the one who's got the whole world in his hands, right? the mind behind all matter, the mind that is capable of minding all eight billion minds in this world at once, the one who creates by the word of his power, the one who upholds and sustains reality itself, surely this God is going to be just a little bit beyond us and maybe a little bit different than us. He's transcendent. He's other. He's not like us. He is triune, uh, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. He's this great transcendent God. And yet what we see in this passage is that here is this, the great transcendent God, come to us, revealing himself to us, comforting us. And Christ is doing it here primarily in his promise of the Spirit. There's an important he there in verse 26. Spirit, the word in Greek is neuter, but then he, you have the masculine pronoun. That's a person. He, this spirit, will come, and he will comfort. The spirit is a person. Peace is personal. The spirit is personal. We need to more intentionally make sure that when we think spirit, we think person. When we pray, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we're not just praying that I believe that God is powerful. No, we're confessing our belief in this specific person. Back in verse 16, who will be with us forever. And isn't that what you most want and need in times of trouble? Another, someone else, a person, a presence who will be with you and who will come alongside you and who will help you. 
And that's precisely what we've seen Christ call the Spirit. We talked about this a few weeks ago. This is the second time Jesus has used this word. We read helper twice in verse 16 and verse 26. And it's a word that we need help translating and understanding. Because no English word quite does justice to the full range of what the Greek word contains and conveys. Remember the Greek word is parakletos. Para means alongside. Kletos means to, to call. So as one who is, who is called alongside for the purpose of, of, of helping in some way. Some have translated this word advocate, counselor, consoler, comforter. Helper's probably the best and closest that we can get. I would like to be able to go with the translation comforter. I think that would be ideal in my mind. What they need is comfort. They're troubled. They need comfort. So to then come alongside and comfort is, is perfect. But I was thinking of this uh, yesterday. Uh, VJ sent out the email that on Monday, um, Eldon went home to be with the Lord, and so some of us were out at her funeral uh, yesterday morning. And I was thinking about this as, as Pastor Sager read 2 Corinthians 1.3. Uh, I use this verse a lot, but it really struck me, and I was thinking about it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And he goes on to talk about that comfort in the verses to follow. But what does that really mean? Comfort. Because we, we've so watered down that word these days. When we think comfort, we think comfortable. I, I, we're sick. We're just going to be sick forever, apparently. That's what's going on in our house. I think that's the new thing. Just We're going to be sick forever. That's all right. God's in control. But so Emma right now, she's got it. And so she's too big, but I'm still having to carry her up and downstairs and do these things. And I'm like, man, I'm getting old and she's getting big. And so carrying up and down. And then one of them, she says, oh, I, I, need my, I need my comforter. What does she need? I mean, she just wants a blanket. That's the blanket. When we think comforter, we think a blanket. We think big, soft, plushy, and we wrap up in our comforter. We've got our, our comfort with this big, soft, cushy thing. That's not what the word used to mean. In Latin, cum means with, and fortis means strength. Think fortress, or fortify, or for our musicians and our Italians, fortissimo. Right? Very, very strong, very loud. And so originally, a comforter is one who is with you to fortify you, to, to strengthen you. And so we, we, we're so prone to think of comforting as soothing, consoling empathy. You know, they're there, it'll be all right. And listen, that is all right at times. There, there is a place for that. We, we do need that, of course. But maybe that's not exactly what the Scripture is talking about when it talks about comfort. Maybe, and I know this is true for me at least, Maybe I need to be a little more aware of the fact that one of my prevailing idols is comfort and the demand for ease, entertainment. Maybe part of my peace problem is that I have a misunderstanding of how I can find real comfort in the context of trouble. You know, I look forward in entertainment. I look forward in ease, comfortability, and calm. So I divert and distract. I self-medicate. Let me ignore or drown out this trouble with a long run. Let me get lost in a book. Let me distract with Netflix. Let me get some cookies or eat some cookies. You need to know how you self-medicate. But none of those things are true comfort. 
You know what the word is, the verb, in 2 Corinthians 1 for comforter, blessed be the God of God who comforts us? It's the same word as our passage. It's parakletos. It's the verb form of the same thing. He helps us. He comes alongside us. He strengthens us and he fortifies us. And that's who the Holy Spirit is. And that's what he does. Peace comes only from this person who is the comforter in the full sense of the word, who is the helper, the one who comes alongside us in our trouble. And so that's at least a start, a bit of of who he is. He's a person and he is with us. He is present, uh, but there's more. We need more. We all want presence in times of trouble, but what we really want is powerful presence, able, effective presence. Yes, we are comforted just by having someone simply with us, but what we really need is someone who can do something for us and someone who can do something about our trouble. And so let's keep moving. Point number two. Let's consider now peace in the work of the Holy Spirit. We're now considering the, the, the what do you do question. Who are you? What do you do? Maybe the further explanation that Christ gives us will help us to understand the work of the Spirit and thus how we find comfort and peace. Let me warn you ahead of time. You're going to be disappointed. Don't be disappointed. He's another paraclete. He's another one who comes alongside and helps, but look at how he does it. Go back. Look at verse 17 for a second. Look back at verse 17. Remember, he's introduced twice. There are five Holy Spirit passages. This is the second one. And these two come together closely in 14. Back in 17, Jesus introduces the Spirit, this helper, and then he says he is the Spirit of truth. That's hugely important. And now back to our verse, verse 26. Look at it. The helper, the Holy Spirit, here it is. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I love that. I think that that's what many of us are missing. This is where we find peace. This is how the Spirit helps us and comforts us. He teaches us. Disappointed? Don't be. Teachers among us, be encouraged. I hear this is this, is this important uh, teaching. You are imaging the Holy Spirit as you teach. Listen, I know this sounds underwhelming. Oh, he teaches us. Hold on. This is so much bigger and better than all other therapeutic attempts at comfort. As we saw in the beginning, in this age of authenticity and feeling, happiness, comfort, peace, whatever you want to call it, are entirely an individual internal thing. So what matters most for you is your own sense of what you feel will help your own personal psychological well-being. And so comfort, counsel, therapy comes alongside to affirm you in that, to encourage you in that, and then to help you kind of draw that out and to to better live out what's inside. But what if what's inside is what's the problem? What if there is such a thing as sin? Not just that we are broken. We are. But that we are rebellious God-haters, would-be God-killers, setting ourselves up in opposition to the very God who made us. What if we are our own worst problem? You can't help your sin-sick self with your own sin-sick self. And so what if we really are sinners? 
This is why the first thing that Jesus does before he launches into these five chapters of teaching, he prepares his disciples by teaching them. Well, the first thing he does before leaving them was he washes their feet. Remember, symbolically demonstrating to them that what they needed and that what he was about to do for them was to wash their souls, was to cleanse them from the sin that separates them and us from God. This is why he said back in chapter 10 that he has come that he may have life and have it abundantly. That sounds great. Well, then why are his very next words, oh, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's why we read all the way back in the very beginning in 118 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Remember, the most important, the most amazing thing that has ever happened. It's, it's the incarnation. God has become man. Why does the word take on flesh? Because flesh can die. This is why John the Baptist says later in that chapter, 129, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is why Christ has come. This is what he has done. This is what he has been teaching his disciples over and over and over again. But as we've been seeing, they have so struggled to get it. He has just said to them in 14.9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? That knowing that he's about to say in 17.3 that, that it is itself eternal life. And so if, if all those things are true, then there's nothing we need more than we need to be taught. Effectively taught. Savingly taught about who God is about who Christ is, about who we are in our sin, about the one thing that can and has been done about that sin, which is death. And that one thing is death, Christ's substitutionary death for us in our place. And about the objective and subjective peace that secures for all who believe in Him. This is what you need. You need this taught to you effectively, savingly. This is what Christ himself has been doing. Back in chapter 11, verse 8, we read, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, teacher, that means teacher. Jesus was their teacher, and he is here promising another one like him, another teacher who will go on teaching them, for that is what they most need, and that is what you most need, the effective teaching of the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the concept of truth is so central to John's gospel and so central to the whole of God's reality. Come to Bible study Thursday night. Why not bear false witness? Well, because of who God is. And because of how his world works. Why do you need truth and teaching? Because of who God is and because of how his world works. He is the God of truth. He is the God who speaks reality into existence. Just try to think about that and meditate on that at some point. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Hebrews 1, 3, again, this is just the one that wow, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And what a word. What a powerful word. 
And remember, in your trouble, you need not only presence, you need effective, powerful presence. What could be more powerful than the word that creates and sustains reality? You live in a worded world. In a very real sense, everything that you can see and touch and taste is made of words. Word is, words are the very foundation of the world's existence and our existence. God speaks and everything. And that's the first thing that we learn about him. He exists, he is, and he speaks. And he speaks words. And those words work life. Should we not then be people who care greatly about words? I mean, just, just in general. But first and foremost, who care greatly about this word, right? About God's word, this living and active word? What if this is actually the word of the God who does all those things, who creates everything with his word and sustains reality with his word? What if this is actually that? Why is the first thing Jesus tells us about this promised Holy Spirit who will be our help and comfort in times of trouble? Why is the first thing that he tells us that he is the spirit of truth and that he will teach us? Because that's the very thing that you need in the midst of your trouble. You need to know the truth. You need to know who God is and what he is up to and how your tiny little piece of the puzzle works into the grand composition of his whole great and grand story of his glory in the salvation of sinners through his son. Perspective changes everything. Perspective comes from the word. And so the very first thing Jesus promises us is the teaching and the remembering and the recording and the preserving of that word. You need to be effectively taught that word. And hear me out. This, this, is first, this is our promise about the Holy Spirit's teaching. But listen, this is why we are so committed to teaching and preaching God's word here, to seeking to do so expositionally. We might not do it that well. I don't have a lot of confidence in my preaching and teaching right now, but I have great confidence in the Holy Spirit. So all that we do then, all that we can do to the best of our ability is to present that word and then to pray and then to trust the Lord that he's going to use that word to work his will and to draw us and make us like him. And so the very foundation of our teaching ministry is, is, is this, that God has given us a helper. And that he works and he teaches and he does so through his word. And so you should care much about that word. When it's well taught, when it's poorly taught, if it's still the word, this spirit can do infinite and immeasurable things with that word. He is the teacher. This is what you need. Now, let's be clear that this is a promise first and foremost to the disciples those ones that he is directly speaking to, who are going to be the ones who write down the very words that we are considering right now. This is a promise to John about his writing of this very gospel of John. This is a promise primarily about the very book that you hold in your hand. Jesus is talking about this, the very foundation of our faith. And everything depends upon this book. Everything. Everything. I had a conversation with someone this week trying to decide, uh, they were trying to decide what they believed about a very significant cultural moral issue these days. So we kind of talked through that issue and kind of various things and different opinions and all those things. And then we, we moved and I tried to shift the conversation. And then they rightly came to the conclusion towards the end that ultimately what they needed to decide is what they believe about God's word. 
That's it. Is it inspired? Is it the very word of God? Is it inerrant? Without error and true, uh, without error, and it is true in all that it affirms. Is it clear, necessary, sufficient? Is it our authority? Those are the four general attributes of Scripture. Authority, necessity, sufficiency, clarity. Is it those things? That's the question. What is this word? 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the argument is quite simple, is, is that God does not breathe out error. And so that which is breathed out by God is true and good. But how is it breathed out by God? Who does that? Whose role, whose, whose work is that? Let me read for you 2 Peter chapter 1. You can flip there if you want. I didn't get a page number. Um, I'm going to read for you verses 16 through 21. It's a little bit of a longer passage, but I just I, it's such a unique and neat passage that I want to encourage you to at least consider it for a little bit. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll try not to preach a second sermon on 2 Peter chapter 1. Sorry, it's page 1018 in the Pew Bible. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verse 16. Remember, Peter is here listening to Jesus back in John 14. We talked about the Mount of Transfiguration this morning in Sunday school. Uh, Peter just laid out for us a little bit of our Peter, laid out for what that is. This is this Peter talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to what he does. 2 Peter 1, 16. For we did not follow clearly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, that's the Mount of Transfiguration, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Catch this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is promising in John 14. And again, let me make it clear if you missed it. Did you catch what Peter just said? He stood on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the Son of God unveiled in all His glory. He heard the very voice of the Father of God, and that almost never happens. And Peter says, we have something more fully confirmed than that. I heard that. We have something more fully confirmed than that here. You think that you would listen if you heard God's voice? Peter says this is more fully confirmed than that. Why? For this wasn't produced by the will of man, but men were speaking from God by the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is promising in John 14. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He is our helper, and he is our helper by being our teacher. Again, we know that he does more than that, of course. 
He regenerates us. He sanctifies us. He is present with us to guide us, to encourage us. But he does it all by and through this living and active word that he teaches us. The word is everything because it is his word and it is how he operates. I want you to start thinking teacher when you think the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, he's first the teacher of the apostles in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But secondarily, he is also our teacher as he continues to illuminate that same scripture and apply it to our hearts. I can't preach it without the Holy Spirit. You can't understand it without the Holy Spirit. This is why we pray before we preach. This is why I pray before I read God's word every time. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law because I can't see it and understand it apart from him I ask to, I have to ask him to help me do the thing that I cannot do myself first Corinthians two fourteen: the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them and so we desperately need verses 12 and 13 before that now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. That's what you need. Words taught by the Spirit. That's what I pray every time. This time will be utterly wasted. These are just my words and my wisdom. So I'm praying desperately, Father, the only thing that can be accomplished of value here is if we are taught by your Spirit. If your Spirit works through this word and through my imperfect words, uh, seeking to exposit that word, only if you work through that will anything good be accomplished. You need words taught by the Spirit. And that's what Christ is promising you for your comfort and help in these verses. And that is where you will find your peace. There is no peace apart from the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Are you looking for your peace in and through him, in and through his wonderful word? You will find no peace outside and apart from the word. Point number three. Shorter. Uh, I, I was struggling here. I had no peace about my point on peace here. Uh, again, ironic that the Lord had me working on a sermon of peace in a very not peaceful week. Where does this point come from? Well, from verse 27, first and foremost, I think. Look at it again. From the fact that Jesus doesn't leave it at peace I leave with you. He ups the ante. He does us one better. My peace I give to you. And they call, you call that my an emphatic possessive pronoun. Just ignore it. It's obnoxious. It just means emphasis. It's for, it's for the purpose of emphasis. My peace. Not just peace. My peace. His peace. And who is he, by the way? Well, he is peace. He's the prince of peace. And so all I want to do here for these last couple of minutes as we wrap up is to try to emphasize how good and necessary this peace is. And thus hopefully to encourage you to pursue this peace in this way at all costs. You know, we haven't yet really defined what peace actually is, so maybe we should do that for a second, because as is often the case, the general understanding of it today is somewhat deficient. We throw up peace signs in pictures. Uh, we think of peace almost exclusively in contrast 
to war. So, so peace is generally considered to be the absence of conflict. And listen, hold, hold on. Of course, that is an important part of peace. Did you just, just stop there? Can you imagine how wonderful that would be? The complete absence of conflict without? No more relational breakdown. No more shootings. No more wars. Complete absence of conflict without. Complete absence of conflict within? Oh, no more insecurity, anxiety, no more doubt, no more fear. How wonderful does that sound? You don't know yourself if that doesn't sound good to you. That itself is worth striving for. We are troubled because there is conflict. And so much of that conflict is within ourselves, with our own competing passions and desires, pride and self-obsession. So peace is an absence of that conflict. And that does sound wonderful. But this peace, his peace, is even more than that. It's even better than that. You know the Hebrew word. It's shalom. And it's a much fuller and richer concept than the absence of conflict. It came to kind of stand for for well-being in the fullest sense. The word meant wholeness, soundness, completeness. Shalom gathers up and embodies all of the blessings of God and all of his promises together. Shalom is life at its fullest, at its best, from and with God. And so it's actually, first and foremost, not the absence of something, but the presence of something, of someone, the presence of of him. And so we talk both about the objective peace with God, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Paul says we were sinners. Verse 10, Paul says we were enemies of God. So the thing that we need first and foremost is peace with this God that we made our enemy. And so listen, don't miss this point, especially if you're visiting, especially if you're not a believer. Listen, you cannot and you will not have peace. You will never experience any subjective peace until you first have this peace with God. Until you are first made right with the God that you wronged. And that is possible only by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Only by this one who has come to take on the sin that separates us from God. The sin that demands our death. He himself then is separated. He himself, is di- he himself dies. He takes our place, pays our penalty, so that the relationship can be restored. So that there can be peace with God. There's nothing more important for your life and for your soul than this peace with God. There's nothing more important than knowing you have this peace with God. If you you have questions about that, come see Pastor Mike. See see me. Talk with someone around you. We'd love to talk with you more through who this Christ is and and what he does and, and how to find peace with him. But it is only from this objective peace with God that then increasingly flows the subjective peace of God. That's where this weirdly worded point comes from really. I just took two of my favorite peace verses and I shoved them together. The first one is Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses or passeth, I wanted the alliteration in the King James, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Sounds similar. Let not your hearts be troubled, 
let the peace of God guard your heart and your mind. And this is the subjective, if we're honest, fluctuating, but in Christ, uh, growing, we hope, experience of the absence of spiritual unrest and uncertainty, of the growing experience of, uh, of salvation, of the experience of, of the assurance of salvation in Christ, the, the growing awareness of God's loving presence by the Spirit in all of our circumstances, which of course depends upon growing in the knowledge of the Lord, exercising your faith in Him, fixing your mind upon His perfect promises. Do you know anything of this peace, this, this, this subjective experience of, of rest and contentment and calm of soul that comes only from knowing and being known by the Lord? Do you have peace with God and do you have at least some taste of the peace of God? Again, as I said, I know that I have, I have much to learn in this area. In a tough couple of weeks, in a tough couple of months, God has lovingly and graciously been showing me how little I really know and enjoy this peace. Yet here I am, right, preaching a sermon on this peace. So again, I, I'm just so, that makes me so, so thankful for God's grace. So thankful that He is a loving Heavenly Father, a patient and perfect teacher, using His Word using his ordained difficulties of life, and then bringing both of those things into contact with my heart to show me what's really there and to show me how much more I have to learn and thus how utterly dependent I am upon his grace. And so if you are at all like me, what do you do? Well, first start with a verse before Philippians 4, 7. Verse 7 starts with an and. And that and connects to verse 6, obviously. Uh, but I know that you know this, but I also know that you don't do this as much as you think that you do this. And I know that that's the case because I know that that's true for me. The verse that comes before this peace that passes all understanding. Paul tells us, do, let not your hearts be troubled. Here's another version. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And verse 7, the peace that passes all understanding will guard your heart. So again, Paul says pray, verse 6, and then Paul says peace, verse 7. Hey, I'm not saying there's like this magic voila thing, right? Pray this and boom, peace. I pray this thing, now I have perfect peace. No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that you probably have not done and tried that as much as you think that you have. It actually takes intentional effort on my part in the midst of trouble to be like, oh, wait a second. I should probably pray about this thing. That's not a good thing. I want that to increasingly be my first move. You're not praying about your troubled heart as much as you think that you are praying. Pray. We must pray. Pray your anxieties. Pray your troubles. David gives you great freedom in the Psalms to confess those things openly and honestly before the Lord Pray, cast all your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. And then second, again, Sharon's favorite verse, Isaiah 26, 3. The second peace verse that gives us our weirdly worded third point. I just love, I come back to this verse again and again and again. You keep him in perfect peace 
whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I love that verse because it's so clear, because it's so challenging, and because it's so promising. First, because it's, it's God that provides the peace. You keep him. This is something that God, the Lord, does. This peace is a supernatural gift of God. Listen, stop pursuing your peace and improved circumstances. And that is the one place you are tending to pursue your peace. If you are like me, if you're like me, these things are bad, I'm troubled by these things. Once these things change, I will have peace. That is almost the exclusive way that we seek to find, to find peace these days. This verse tells us that this peace comes from the Lord. Again, this is the book of Isaiah in the first part of it. Not a whole lot of peace uh, going on right now. But there's some way in which the Lord can keep his people in perfect peace in the midst of terrible circumstances. Also, there actually is no word perfect in the Hebrew. If you go pull up the Hebrew, there's no word perfect. It literally says, you keep him in shalom, shalom. It doubles the word. It's something the Hebrew does sometimes, which is, which is just simply emphasizing the exceedingly good nature of this peace. This is not just peace, which we just saw how good it is. No, this is peace, peace. This is shalom, shalom, perfect peace. So this exceedingly good uh, completeness, wholeness, rest in the Lord comes from him. But he works through means. He provides that peace generally in a specific way, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And so again, these are pretty simple applications, I know. But if your first one is pray, well then the second one is think. It's, it's, it's meditate. I think we don't like that word. And so we're like, he's saying meditate, that's weird. I don't know. Again, it's a biblical word. It's a biblical concept. Fix your mind upon, fill your mind with the Lord in his goodness and his glory and his grace. Those troubling, difficult circumstances will seek to consume your thoughts and your mind and your attention. It will be very easy to think only about all the bad things. It takes an intentional exercise of the will by the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, to move the mind from those things to these things. To that, from that which is definitely true, temporarily and earthly, but to that which is more true, eternally, and more important. Fix your minds on Him. The peace is for the one whose mind is stayed upon the Lord. Do you know how to do that? Are you, are you striving to fix and fill your mind with the things of God? Without launching into them and taking way too much time because I'm out of time, again, let me at least encourage you. Here's two things to think about and consider. You need to pursue peace in the providence of God. Peace is found in the providence of God. Henry recently gave us Jeremiah Burroughs' definition of contentment. This equally applies to peace. Christian contentment or peace is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal. It's what God does in every condition. That's providence. Peace comes from trusting and resting in God's providence, believing in God's good and gracious working in all circumstances. And then second, pursue peace in the promises of God. Pursue peace in the providence of God and in the promises of God. Do you know how to use the promises of God? Do you know what this God has promised to do for, in, and through you? 
Related to providence, do you live in light of the fact that he promises to work all things for your good? We give that lip service. We don't really believe it. What does it look like to, believe, to live in light of that truth? Find peace in providence and promises. And so this is the peace that we all want. Here's where it is found. You want the peace of God? Pray to him, call out to him, fill your mind with him. That, of course, requires the word of God. That is all entirely dependent upon the spirit of God. And then to begin, begin to consider the whole of your life through those lenses. The Holy Spirit will help you. He will teach you. Ask him for that help. Ask those of us around you uh, for that help. Peace is what you want. Christ offers you his very peace. Not as the world gives. Not circumstantial peace. True peace in and with him. Christ alone is where you will find peace. True peace is found only as the Spirit teaches you that which is ultimately true. If you would bow with me, let's go to the Lord by His Spirit and let's ask for Him to do these things in us and for us. Let's pray. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Help us to better understand who He is. Help us to better understand how He works. Father, help us this day in this week to come to increasingly seek our peace in you by the Spirit through the Word based upon what Christ has done fully and finally for us. Father, forgive us for how prone we are to seek our peace in the things of this world. How prone we are to base our peace entirely upon our circumstances. Father, you have given us these 60, 70, 80 years in this life. And you have told us that there is an eternity of life to come. And yet how much of our minds are entirely consumed with these few short years. Father, give us perspective. Father, help us to increasingly consider this life in light of the light, of the life to come. Help us to increasingly consider our day-to-day -day lives in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, who cares if these little things are going poorly if we are with you and in you and you are in us and we have an eternity of pleasure and full joy promised and guaranteed to us in Christ. Father, help us to believe those things. Father, we want there to be peace in this world. We want there to be external peace in our lives and in our families and, and amongst ourselves uh, here in this church. But Father, we know that there, there is no peace to be found apart from Jesus Christ. There is no ultimate lasting peace. And so help us to pursue you first and foremost. Help us to delight in the peace that we have with you. And we simply pray that we would increasingly experience the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Thank you for your grace in this time. And we thank you for Jesus. Amen.